Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. Hi, and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. I'm Mae Wilkinson, filling in for Mary Ann, who's manning the switchboard and tweet chat this evening. Tonight, we welcome Eileen Miller, autism advocate, mother, and author of The Girl Who Spoke in Pictures, which tells the story of how her nonverbal daughter leveraged art to communicate. Now Eileen is back to talk about her new book, Behind the Pictures, which tells the story of how autism affected her family and how they survived. And I must say, ladies and gentlemen, uh, prepare for a long trip down memory lane um, into those early years. And, And Eileen tells a very, very realistic story of what those years were like, and I know that we can all identify so welcome, Eileen. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me at the coffee class. Very good. Well, uh, uh, let's let's get started. I um, I would like to talk about um, if you could just kind of bring everyone up to speed on on the two books that you've written. Maybe you can summarize your first book, which was um, uh, the the pictures book, the uh, the girl who spoke in pictures and. And tell us why you wrote that and then why you chose to write um, Behind the Pictures, which is sort of a prequel and a sequel at the same time. So tell us a little bit about your writing. Well, I started The uh, Girl Who Spoke With Pictures uh, when Kim was in kindergarten, and she was just beginning to bud into the artist that um, uh, she would become, um, she was drawing three-dimensionally, and the fantastic thing about it was that she wasn't really able to verbalize functionally uh, everyday uh, words, and so she had nouns, she had words here and there, but she didn't really make good connections, and so when she was uh, doing show-and-tell in kindergarten, she was half pantomiming and half saying a word, and people could not understand her. But when they looked at her pictures, they could see what was happening inside her, and so it became very important so that we could understand what she was feeling, what she was thinking, how she viewed the world. And so then it became communication as time went on, and she built language, uh, let's say a, a teacher didn't understand that her lessons were getting through to Kim, I could take a picture and show that teacher and say, yes, she understands the value of money because she just showed it in this picture. So it was a valuable tool. And it also showed her thought process, uh, how she developed as an autistic person. Uh, did she have the same feelings uh, that a junior high child had that was typical? Yes, she did. I could see it in her pictures. So we found out a lot of her psychology, her emotional development, her uh, brain development through the pictures. And uh, behind the pictures, like you say very astutely, that it is a a companion book to The Girl Who Spoke With Pictures. And what it addresses necessarily is the strategies or are the strategies that we used uh, to change behaviors that we found difficult or uh, we found ways of living uh, with an autistic individual because sometimes it can be very difficult. Uh, um, Kim did not require sleep like other children, and so uh, she was uh, awake for a large amount of time, and she was born with autism, 
um, she didn't have the typical onset of uh, between the ages of three and four. Mm-hmm. That is so much like my son as well. And, and yet some of those, I think you talk in your book about Kim um, being the most relaxed and ready to, um, you know, learn or do really good work in those hours between 2 o'clock in the morning and 5 o'clock in the morning. And, and I remember those early, late night, early morning hours as being some of the most peaceful and gentle and loving times that I spent with my son also. So something about the wee small hours of the morning are are really, really good for our Well, you kids. know what it is. What? You know Tell what it something. is? <laughs> it's because the stimulation at that time is at its lowest ebb. When yes. you think about it, the neighborhood gets very quiet. Mm-hmm. The dogs aren't barking, children aren't chattering, the lawnmowers aren't going. Think about it. <laughs> Activity has, has gone way down. So they can relax a little bit more. And those early years, you know, behind the pictures, be, you know, um, I think you talk about art as being Kim's Rosetta Stone, and a lot of our children have that same type of substitution technique. Um, my son speaks in music when he wants to communicate. Um, he, we will use art occasionally, but there's they they find a way to communicate eventually. But it's those first few years that, as a parent, um, you really are in that um, post-traumatic stress disorder kind of, of mode. And I thought that your description of those early years was absolutely wonderful. It wasn't falsely heroic, and it wasn't falsely pitying. It just was what it, you know, it, it was just a very wonderful and realistic and courageous Eileen description of what happened when you um, during those early times would you would you like to summarize a, a little bit of, of what you as a mother went through well I was worn out to say the least because uh, Kim required care round the clock as a baby and she had some issues of her own that caused me to have physical pain and also being a nursing mother was an interesting thing because whenever she cried, which was all the time, my body was responding to that. So my body was just overwhelmed and very exhausted. And um, I noticed that a lot of parents go through this kind of exhaustion, and it wears down their mental abilities as well. They don't realize that the rest that they need is very important for their body, even though they may be a young parents they they your body will wear out and it will take uh its time out i mean i have passed out on the floor mm-hmm. from total exhaustion my husband took a picture because he thought well that's an odd place for eileen to fall asleep <laughs> wow but he he and that's another thing i wanted to bring into the book too is the people who are closest to us are not necessarily the people who can identify what's going on with us Absolutely, uh, and that goes for spouses and family members. One of the um, illustrations that you gave wasn't necessarily family, but you said there were a lot of people out there that would say, oh, my son does that too, my daughter does that too, and you're <laughs> seething, thinking you have no idea. Is that <laughs> what you meant by people who really don't understand their That's very, very true. They don't understand the true reality of how much 
energy it takes to take that child outside or to take that person um, on an outing that most people would take for granted where you're on as a parent. You are making sure that child doesn't escape. You make sure that child isn't doing something dangerous. You make sure, whereas they just watch their children play on the equipment, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so, you know, blithely. And uh, they don't understand the true um, mentality it takes to be out there and trying to be the parent. But it takes extra mental because you have to hyper-watch your child because they don't realize danger. And um, the same token with when you say, oh, you know, I didn't sleep last night because, you know, my child was up all night. And I'll say, oh, I know what that is. I only had, you know, four hours sleep. And I'm thinking four hours sleep would be wonderful. You know, I got an hour. (laughs) I was lucky. (laughs) You know, but you're not Superman and you cannot keep going. And it wears after a while. And I can tell you, the body can go without sleep for weeks. Mm-hmm. And it's not pretty, and it takes a psychological toll. And I'm concerned about parents out there. just got an email from a parent about an hour ago. I just want to save them. <laughs> I want to, you know, help them out so that they will not, you know, uh, take a toll on their bodies so much. It, uh, they need help, and they need to seek out respite care. They need to seek out help. And I talk about mother's helpers in the book as well, and that got me through. These mother helpers were teenagers who were volunteers. They were not paid. And they helped me do the mundane things in life that other people take for granted, like going to the park. And um, I had two children, only two children at that ever at that time and um these these people helped me and and people say well i can't afford a mother's helper and, but these these teenagers did it um out of love and because i gave them references when it came time for them to get a job when you're 13 14 years old you usually can't get a job if you're a mother's helper you get work experience and then you get something put on your resume and you can that way uh, the parents of autistic children can help and give back to them. So it's an advantage if you think about it. Uh, I had an extra pair of hands. I had an extra pair of eyes, and it took a lot of pressure off of trying to keep track of uh, the children and making sure they were safe. It saved my sanity quite a bit. Well, absolutely. Now, a couple of things um, that I think illustrate your point. In your book, you talked about how you were trying to get some housework done and you were checking on Kim, who was playing outside every three minutes, and you decided, oh, I'm being overly (laughs) vigilant. I'm going to wait to check every five minutes. And somewhere between that three and five minutes, Kim disappeared, and it required, you know, law enforcement, including your husband, to go and try and find her. So that is no exaggeration that our children require constant surveillance or constant monitoring and watching. Um, and on the mother's helper, the it is not unaffordable to get a helper. Right, you can get uh, respite reimbursement from your local ARC or your local Productive Living Board, and I hope somebody will retweet this so that those mothers out there who think that they cannot afford help, they really can. There are reimbursement programs out there, 
Is that do you find that true in your state, Eileen? In my state, when they shut down a um, mental hospital, um, there was a fund that was set up uh, from that issue, and so the, our respite is funded from that because we keep our children at home. We don't send them away. Um, that's how we get the monies for respite. Mm-hmm. It's called the Lifespan Very um, good. Fund. So, so there are programs out there. It takes a little bit of research, but but mothers should not uh, deny themselves that extra help because they think they cannot afford it. There are there are respite reimbursement programs out there. So that's step one is is sort of trying to get the the mom to have the rest that she needs. Um, what about advocacy? I just saw a study that said that taking some advocacy training really helps alleviate stress and lessen intimidation in 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 parents. So advocacy training is is just as good for parents as it is for the children in terms of relieving stress and making things better. It reestablishes a sense of control. Do you recommend that parents take advocacy training? Oh, certainly, uh, most definitely. Uh, we had to rather learn this um, on the spot uh, kind of thing. So I think that any kind of training like advocacy training, things like that will be really beneficial uh, so that a parent can get their footing because autism kind of blindsides you. I mean, it, it certainly did me. I was not a parent who was prepared to have a special needs child. I, I don't know that many people are. But I didn't have a chance to really learn about it. I had to uh, catch up because Kim had been autistic for three years. She had um, these autistic behaviors caused our our family to be dysfunctional. We were a functional family to start out with three of us, a mother, a father, and a typical child. And then Kim came into the mix and everything that we knew to be the rules of the family and the values of the family, everything went out the door. And we were just trying to scramble to find ourselves. So I think that an advocacy uh, group, I think a grieving group uh, would be a very good place. Not that you're grieving about your child necessarily, but there's a life that change that has happened. And sometimes we somewhat become sad that our life is not on the, the track that it was before, and we need to reconcile ourselves to that. So I would also say that that would be a good thing to do as well. Very cool. So And then, um, so, so slowly... Uh, the, the the parents are beginning to to find some respite. They're they're getting some help. They're getting smarter on this thing called autism. They're beginning to understand their child, and and you develop almost um, a radar, an extrasensory perception about what your child needs. You know, sometimes I know when my son is in trouble, the hair will stand up on the back of my neck, and I know I have to get to him right away. So we develop those those senses for our children. And then just when we're kind of getting the hang of it, so in comes preschool, and we get into the school system. <laughs> and I know in your book you have a lot of tips and guidelines for schools. You want to run us through a few of those of your favorites? Well, one of the most beautiful things that has served Kim from preschool 
till uh, college and beyond uh, was a journal. And people say, oh, yeah, I write a, a journal, but the journal that I'm talking about <clears throat> is not necessarily about how you feel. It's a diary or a journal about your child. It can be their behaviors. It can be their demeanor that day. It could be about any environmental changes that you've noticed. It's observations. Observations about autism are so important because you get to know your child. I found out that my my daughter liked uh, the color electric lime green. (laughs) Wow. I mean, and, and you might think, well, yeah, that's nice, but how do I use that? Well, she didn't like to wear clothes. So what did we do? We found electric lime green shoes and pants and shirts and anything that I could get on that body of hers. <laughs> she would eat out of electric lime green bowl that I got from Tupperware. Yay, because she used to <laughs> knock it out of my hand. <laughs> it was in a brown bowl. I'm sorry. you know. <laughs> um, so I found out these things. I discovered uh, when my daughter uh, figured out what nighttime was. Um, I don't have... Um, things written down about him having her first smile or when necessarily when she had some of the social milestones, you know, and I kind of missed that. And reading back in the journals, I found wonderful, fantastic things that I could use to motivate her to do things. Um, There's one thing that I did not write in the book, and I, I do believe that that's something that needs to be said about the journal, is that... The things not what to write in the journal. Like if a teacher wrote, Kim had a good day or a beautiful day, well, how did she have a good day? Mm -hmm. Did she play with a friend? Did she accomplish a skill? What did she do? What could I possibly reinforce about that day? You know, a good day doesn't tell me anything. I cannot work with a good day. But if a a teacher said uh, that Kim shared a crayon that was blue with this child, I might be able to come into the the room and say, oh, I hear that you and Kim had a good time coloring. You know, what color was it? And initiate conversation and build social support for Kim. Yes, I I agree. I lived for those little love notes from the school so I could figure out what happened during the day. It was just... It, it just made me feel connected to my child when he was when he was away, and and um, I, I think it's very important. And I could I could leverage that and support what he was learning at school at home. Um, we we have a question here about it was kind of going back to respite. How did you know that you um, can trust a respite care worker? And um, so so what? Can, can you tell me a little bit about how you knew you had a good fit? Well, um, I, I can say I've had a scary experience with <laughs> a respite care provider, and um, uh, that that was a, a difficult time. And after that, I did not trust um, the provided um, respite care provider. So what I, I sought out to do was to make my own, and I met up with. Um, people who were uh, neighbors, and I networked with people around me, and I found out who they knew, who was trustworthy, and looked at uh, the children who were about 13, 14, well, I should call them teenagers, 13, 14 years old, and um, so I would tap into one of those people, and I tell you, 
a teenager is gold because they are still enough of a kid to enjoy playing with the children, and they're sharp. They keep their eyes out for everything. Uh, I found adults to be a, a little more difficult to work with because if I said, well, I don't allow purses in the house, they would try and make an exception. Well, you know, I have my seizure medication in there. Well, that's not really good because I want you to leave the purse outside the home. That was the rule. And when I came home, Kim had something in her mouth, and I always swept her mouth every time I came into the room, and she happened to have something in there. And the lady said, well, you know, it was a piece of candy. No, it was a seizure pill. <laughs> so teenagers tend to follow the rules. Yeah, <laughs> and when I you read set a rule, too. you know. <laughs> scary, 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 scary. Um, we, we we do the same thing. We have, um, we, we check with, uh, like my husband's, Coworkers, they have daughters mm-hmm. who are in college and getting teachers' degrees, or they might have been nannies. One of the biggest things that I've learned to do is trust my son. So if if we were trying out someone and and uh, he would cry when they when I mentioned their name, or he wouldn't want to go with them, that that person was done. I, I trust and respect my son enough to know you know that he did not like that person, and usually it was for a good reason. So. Um, N- nothing totally serious, but I, I, I do. I think that, that doing that networking, as you're suggesting, is, is very wonderful until you start going to, um, before you start uh, going to a service, even though those are good. But if you've got a nonverbal child, I, I think having that extra knowing somebody um, to, to personally recommend them is, is terrific. Um, one of the another question that came up was about music, and I can talk a little bit about that, Eileen. But I I want to make sure that I give you the opportunity to speak first. Did you use any type of music therapy with Kim? Or music no, she hated therapy? sound. <laughs> she didn't like the sound. Okay. She did not like the sound, and she would scream if we sang Happy Birthday. Scream No No No, cover her ears. But. The interesting thing, and this has to do with the girl who spoke with pictures, she drew herself making beautiful music, playing the flute. You know, it just she loved music on paper. Mhm, mhm. So she well, enjoyed it on paper. <laughs> well, what what I'll do is I'll, I'll just take a quick two twenty second segue and say what what we did with music started very very early i I had a hard time getting my son to engage with me. It seemed like he didn't even like me, so I just put him on my lap facing me, and I sang, "If you're happy, and you know what wiggle your ears and wiggle, wiggle, wiggle with the ears, and mm-hmm. he smiled at me for the first time oh. and then you know later on, we had the music therapy in preschool, and then for language um the 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 melody tends to make those pesky words stick together when the words don't make sense together but the melody is predictable it's a predictable chorus and sometimes when he's reading out loud he actually sings what he's reading cuz it makes the words flow together so i hope that answers the audience person's question and Eileen thank you for giving me that segue let's get back to you That's uh, beg your pardon that's beautiful. What you just said was just beautiful. Oh, thank you. Um, like you, we 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 learn um, these workarounds, and and I I think I've never been as creative 
in my whole life. That's a huge gift that my son has given me is the gift of creativity and out-of-the-box thinking. Um, and I see it in you, too. And let's talk about that. Let's talk about how you used um, some of these workarounds and tips to kind of help you gain credibility and communicate with everyone in Kim's life, um, such as medical professionals and, and medications. I don't know if she's on any medications or not, but, but most of our kids at least you know, have antibiotics or something along the way. So how, did you, how would you recommend parents work with people in the medical field? Well, I was very fortunate that Kim was not... Um she did not have any kind of physical condition. However, uh, she did need to go to a physician every now and then to, for a checkup. And it was very difficult because they would allow Kim to sit in the um, waiting room for a very long time. It seemed like an extended amount of time. By that time, you know, toys might be airborne or, you know, she's screeching or trying to climb the walls or something like that. And then finally they would call us and we'd go into the um, physician's room and by that time she was wound up and wanted to get into the physician's very expensive equipment and (laughs) I was just beads of sweat coming down my face and I'm trying to get her out of the drawers you know and she's screaming and she's kicking her feet like scissors right the physician comes in and he says I want to listen to her heart and I thought good luck and he put the stethoscope there, but he didn't really protect himself. He was kind of open, and she was scissor-kicking. I was just about to have a nervous breakdown, thinking she's going to kick him, she's going to kick him. And she, he said, you know, I cannot even really discern how many beats with her heart because it's going so wildly. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, because it's built up to this point. Mm-hmm. So um, I thought... The advice for physicians would be to really make a hard-line appointment, have the person come in five minutes ahead of time. If there's paperwork, have the, send, the, send it to the parent ahead of time in the mail so that they can have it all filled out and just hand it to the um, person at the desk. And then to you know have a five-minute rule, get them right into the um, the room. Well, the other part being the problem was that Kim would be screechy, and I couldn't hear what the doctor was trying to tell me after he did an examination, and there was just no way, you know, it was worthless, you know, to try and hear him. So I'm suggesting that perhaps physicians should have a separate room that's child-friendly, that's quiet, but doesn't have medical equipment that the child can possibly hurt. Either have a receptionist or a nurse take the child into that room if the child will allow it so that the doctor and the parent can talk in peace and discuss issues. Or uh, if the child is calm in that room, maybe the doctor and the um, the parent can talk together in that room. But uh, physicians need to realize that by having a, a long deadline, it just adds to the stimulation of the child, and you're not going to get a very good examination. So true, and uh, I, I, I wish that the, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics, which put that out there as a as a recommendation and as a must do, and and I might even take it a step further is um, when they're really really little, parking garages elevators, if there's a way to have, you know, um, to avoid some of those other 
stressors on the way to the doctor's office, that would be great, too, to have a doctor's office that might even be on the ground floor of the of the doctor's building would be so much better than the stairs and the elevators. I, I think we've got a long way to go to make um, doctor's offices more friendly for all kids and for children with autism in particular. Um, how about the... Um, Working through, let's see, we've talked about the school, we've talked about medical professionals. How about the community in general, Um, neighbors and safety and um, community activities, uh, camps, those types of things? What do you recommend um, for parents to to help through that? You know, the birthday parties that our kids are not invited to, you know, some of the stranger danger and, and eloping, um, what, what kind of things would you recommend? Well, as far as the community, my attitude is educate, educate, educate. Anytime you can, talk to the people around you. This is my child. Uh, I met most of my neighbors by Kim escaping, and they, she was over at their house. So it was, hi, I'm Eileen Miller. This is Kim. If you find her in your house or in your basement or in your yard, please call me because, (laughs) you know, she's not supposed to be alone at any time. So I educated my neighbors. I educated my community. Anytime I could talk about autism, I did. Um, As far as uh, uh, birthday parties and things, I – most of the people understood about Kim. They were very kind about Kim. She seemed to be popular for some reason. Um, and then when it became fifth grade, she decided that she was she kind of stayed at home. She wasn't as social, and that was okay. We accepted that. Uh, it is important as far as law enforcement that if you have an eloper, you need to have all the equipment as far as this is a picture of my child, you have to have an updated picture of your child. Uh, oftentimes law enforcement will offer uh, fingerprinting and a video of your child, kind of a, a, a community outreach service that they do. Uh, check and see if your law enforcement does it as well. Uh, make sure that you have a good description of your child. And um, I think the best way to help an eloper is to make them feel comfortable about the police officer because if you send a police officer out and they're afraid of someone who is in this uniform that they've never seen before and they're, uh, they need to become familiar uh, with the uniform in their uh, community. They also, if I, and when I had an eloper, um, in our state we have something called uh, radio help and it's an icon on the side of a utility vehicle, like cable um, trucks have them, um, power trucks have them, sometimes forestry trucks have them, and they have them on the police cars sometimes. So um, if you can train your child, this is what you look for if you need help, if you need someone to help you, you know, if you're lost, if you're separated from your parents, this person can phone help. So those are important things as well. Absolutely. Well, uh, getting back to Kim, uh, I know that one of the things that helped me get through 
my um, my troubled times, you know, where I I I wanted to throw both of us down the stairs. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was that was was just again thinking more about it's not about me, it's about my son and and what he needs and um, accepting him for the wonderful person he is. The advocacy training and the respite and the sleep helped a lot. Um, what is um, and and eventually he, he you know we learned to communicate and he learned to speak and things just get better and better every year. How um, is and, and Kim is now is, is, did she graduate from college, Eileen? Or she no. Uh, she went to college two years and decided that was uh, as far as she wanted to go because she didn't have a certain. Um, vocation in mind. She didn't have a certain subject in mind of study that she wanted to go on, but she did beautifully. Um, and then what she is doing now is uh, she's an illustrator of a children's book, Apples for Cheyenne, and she is also illustrating and writing her own book, uh, books, I should say. She has two in mind, and um, she's created her own publishing company. Wow. Yeah, isn't that great? So we're taking what, you know, she has and uh she's she's just going forward with it. Um so she's doing quite well though. Um but she she did have some issues at the end of the book which I allude to and they were physical issues that caused her uh some trouble. And uh, we found out what the physical issues were because I used the methods that I'd written about in the book about the journal and being the detective, looking at her environment, what is different, um, and writing these things down and noticing a pattern. And then, you know, I could go to her physician, which I, who I have uh, built support with, and he takes me very seriously so we don't waste time. And um, we, within a matter of months, we were able to uh, deal with the issue at hand. So uh, that's another part that I talk about, it, not only uh, about what physicians can do to help us, but to build support and respect with physicians, because I like to talk about the both sides of the issues. The both sides of the issue, you mean from the medical side and the child side, or what, what do you mean from both sides of the well, issue? From the issue of um, what I need to do to participate and build support for Kim is I, as a parent, need to be that great observer. I need to figure out when that yeah. happened. I need to get, and I need to get information from Kim before I get into the doctor's office so I don't waste his time because his yeah. time is extremely valuable and at a premium. Mm -hmm. And so it's my job to be that detective and be help report that with Kim. And he'll interview Kim as the patient as well, but he also weighs in on, on my observations as well. So I've got to do my part as a partner. And he um, he does his part because he's aware of autism now. He knows that Kim has sensitivities, and so he asks her before he touches her, is it okay if I touch you on the chin? <laughs> so he does his part, I do my part, and we work together as a team. 
I think that is so key, especially if our if our children can't communicate. We we need to be taking those observations and trying to convey their their issues and their needs to the very professionals who are supposed to help them because they're not going to know our kids as well as we do. So we have to supply them something. And parents who abdicate those responsibilities are usually the ones that stay in that in that modality of the the depression and the fatigue and the hopelessness and the fear. So and that was so difficult to deal with because if I am psychologically mentally unhealthy, how can I propel it, my child forward? How mm. can I support them forward when I have my own issues to deal with? Yep. So proactivity and advocacy, I think, are some of the things that, that we would, and rest are probably some of the three most important things that I, I saw threaded throughout your book. Um, is there any, are there any other words of wisdom that you'd like to share with us, Eileen, before we kind of start shutting it down for the evening and taking questions? Well, when I talk about strategies, uh in the very beginning, usually with a small child, um, I'll talk about something simple. And a parent will say, well, I know that. Uh, for instance, uh, Kim had this this thing about she understood and memorized the way to go to a place. And if I did not go to the place where she thought she was going, she would unbuckle her belt, which is very dangerous in the car. Mm-hmm. And then um, I would have to pull over and and I could have got more straps and more straps and, and better buckles and things like that so that she couldn't get up. But I decided to work with her. And so what I did was I created this flip book for her, and I took pictures of places that we'd be going. I put the picture in her lap, took her to that very place, pointed to the picture, pointed to the ground, this is where we're at. And she, so she's like, I get it. So then I added three more pictures, widened her world. We could go to three places per day. We couldn't push it very far. But this, of course, she would outgrow. So the next step was to get a dry eraser board, write the name of the place where we're going, show it to her. And as we went, we marked it off. And so she understood words, you know, uh, are connected to this place now. And so as we go along, these systems can evolve as we go along. Then uh, we use maps, mm-hmm. you know, a map mm-hmm. in our lap. And it seems like really funny to put one in your child's lap when they're in first grade and you think, huh. But it helped her to understand that we don't fall off the edge of the earth. I anticipate where I'm going, and it's not so scary out there. You know, we did the same thing. We did maps, too, uh, and it's very successful. And now he goes into Google Earth and uses <laughs> exactly <laughs> memorizes neighborhoods. So I, yes. wow, so similar. Uh, and it's just so encouraging that, because she, how old is Kim now? Is she 22? She's 23. She's 23, mm-hmm. and she is very verbal, yeah. Yeah, so when you all started this journey, you didn't have any of the supports no. that we enjoy now, even though we don't think no. they're sufficient half the time. You had nothing. <laughs> we had oh. nothing. We didn't have packs. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, we worked. <laughs> and uh, we did something similar to packs, but it was our own kind of, well, we'll do this, and uh, this will be what is the way it will work. But we didn't have a system that was already into place. We had to pull it in for ourselves. We had to make it. Yeah. And, uh 
and going back to those bad days for the, the kind of what I call the new autism parents that are listening and that are still wearing their husband's flannel shirts and they're still red-eyed and sleepy and scared, how, how long did it take you to get out of that phase until you started finding your own your own power and you started to get your own confidence back as a parent? Well, it actually happened um, as I was getting more sleep. There is a definite physical you know, correlation between mental health and sleep. And if you don't get sleep, you're not going to do well. You can't think. You become, you know, more like a zombie. And I hate to say that, but I gave up my will. If my husband said, you know, go over there, I'd go over there. I didn't have a will. It would just took too much of me, out of me, to try and fight against anything that anybody said. So I was very compliant. Um, but... As soon as I started to get some sleep, then I felt the guilt. Oh, Mm -hmm. this is awful. So then I went to a grieving class, and I found out that the sighing that I did, the hallucinations that I had, the insomnia that I had was all very natural. And you know why? It was because this is how my body's reacting to all of this. And then it was, okay, so we're going to deal with it now. But I went down a very, very dark path, and I know a lot of you have. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm scared for you because I want you to know there's a light at the end of the tunnel. But I'm scared for you because I don't know that you know that. So now I'm here to tell you, you can do this autism journey, that it does get better, <laughs> it takes a long time, though. It took a long time for depression to lift. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about real depression. I'm not talking about having the blues. I'm talking about severe depression. And I did not go to a doctor. I'm not advocating that. Um, I didn't know enough to get help, really. And so if you need help, go to a doctor. But um, as the crises in your life, ease off and there's more time between the crises, the less depression you will experience. The more often the crises, the more often you will feel depression. And depression is cyclical. And this is what people do not understand. Depression is cyclical because you think, oh, the depression lifted, I'm better. And then, oh, I'm back. And then, oh, it's better. And people keep thinking, I'm in it again. What is wrong with me? Nothing's wrong with you. This is totally natural. So if you read my book, you can understand about how depression works. And it does, and it's directly related to um, it, a lot of it is your child's progress. You have a setback or you, you realize that, that the child is being hurt or, or bullied or something like that, or it just or or could be held back from the next grade or, you know, all of those developmental setbacks or behaviors start emerging, and, and that's when you just, it's a roller coaster. But the, the highs are, um, are higher and the lows are, are much less low over time. I, exactly. I think, especially with the rest and the advocacy training and um, just, just getting to know your child better and, and respecting them. So instead of trying, you know, just to see that this is a huge emergency, that the gifts that our kids have cannot be understated. They are amazing. Oh, amazing. And and I think that maybe, you know, what you saw with your art is that Kim's receptive language was so much higher than her expressive language was. And thank goodness she found an outlet. 
Exactly. Oh. And so I was there to, I could advocate. I could show the teachers, and in the girl who spoke with pictures, there is a story about kindergarten, and the teachers kept coming to me, you know, Kim really doesn't belong in this placement. Kim really doesn't belong in this placement, meaning she needed to be in a self-contained classroom. And so uh, one night she kept drawing this drawing over and over and over, and it was a chicken, three-dimensional planks, a door, and a shoe. And I didn't understand it, and she kept doing it over and over like a Xerox copy, over and over, over 50 pages, over and over. And I, I said to my husband, I think she's getting at something. I don't know what it is. And she kept counting out of order, and it didn't make any sense. So I kept correcting her about the, the how to count properly. So I went to school the next day. I had her uh, picture in the backpack. I show the teachers. They turn white. I go, what is it? They say, one, two, buckle my shoe is the poem of the week. Oh. One, two, buckle my shoe, three, four, shut the door, five, six, pick up three-dimensional sticks. <laughs> Uh, nine, ten, big fat hen. It was a chicken hen. <laughs> so she got it the whole time. She and got she it, and trying so to show you what she knew. Oh, bless. after that, they treated her and respected her as a learner. Mhm. Oh goodness, Eileen, thank you so much uh, for being here. I, I, for some reason, my tweet chat has locked up. So, Marianne, if you are um, listening in, and there are any questions on the switchboard. Um, Come on in to the uh, to the to the blog talk, um, and while we're waiting there, I'll go ahead and and uh, do these few announcements for you because we've got a couple of really exciting shows coming up on Sunday. Um, the new Coffee Clutch moderator Dana Commandatore is um, having uh, the producer of the movie Living Loving Lamppost, Living with Autism, and that's on Sunday at 9 o'clock. And then on Wednesday, um, we're hosting Mike Royce, who is the creator of Men of a Certain Age and Everybody Loves Raymond. Um, so I hope you can join us on Sunday night and Wednesday night. And if we have no further questions, I just want to thank you, Eileen, so much. And um and I, I hope uh, everyone will, will read the book, uh, Behind the Pictures, to talk about how a family learns to adjust um, with living with a child with autism. And um, your concerns are very real, but they are also um, something that is, is certainly achievable um, to, to develop a, a close and loving relationship and to get the family back on track. Would you agree, Eileen? I would certainly agree, and also I, I hope that people would um, look at the chapter of the uh, law enforcement because there are older children who are not having successful encounters with police officers, and so there are ways that we can address that, and I hope that people will check that out. Mm, very good. All right, well, um, then I will sign off on behalf of Marianne and Eileen. Thank you, everyone, for joining in tonight, and hopefully we'll see you again on the Coffee Clutch on uh, Sunday night and the following Wednesday. Thank you again, and good night. Thank you.